Totally Football Show. Today, with 80 days to go, we bring you the most exciting International Week show we've ever done. With not only BFG, big friendly games like Germany and Spain and France and Argentina and a victory for England, but also the word from Los Angeles on Zlatan's Galaxy Quest, the future for Thomas Tuchel and wobbly screen, cheesy 80s hit. Oh no, we're going back in time as we relive one of the greatest World Cups ever, Germany Deutsche, no, Germany Brazil, when the Deutsche said Danke de Dante, scored Scolari and gave the Celis out a shooing. It is the Totally Football Show. Well, listeners, I'm so looking forward to this. There's Julian Laurent. Hello, James. Raphael Honigstein. Hi, James. Hey. Also, Duncan Alexander. Hello, James. Hi. Duncan, by night known as Oily Sailor. And in the day as well. Really? Yeah. All right. And you have an incredible stat. I do have plenty. Yeah. Raph, this is the most amazing stat. Truly. I'm listening. I'm all ears. Yeah. We'll hear it later on. Yeah, we will. Oh, I see. I'm all fired up for this World Cup now. All of a sudden, it's with the equinox and the arrival of spring weather and, most importantly, my Panini book. I am all up for the World Cup. It's not only Panini books, though, or whipping up the enthusiasm. There's also the new kits. Aren't they great? They're great, especially the uh, Adidas ones. I think Mm. they're much better than the Nike ones. I mean, the French on Friday night... Yeah. They had a new shirt. The blue is two sides of blue, different blue for the the sleeves then to the top uh-huh. but the worst was their training top for the warm-up which either looked like a pyjama it was like basically white with uh, black uh, stripes like uh-huh. horizontal uh-huh. or like if they were in jail it was really weird because no one had seen it before so they just all ran onto the pitch to warm up in those horrible tops and we were like, like what? what's going on that is that's surprising was, isn't it? I promise you it was really weird Okay, because the, the French have experimented bravely with uh, horizontal stripes before, haven't they? Yes, but not as bad as that. Not as bad as, that. Not as bad as that. Okay. What's your favourite kit, Duncan, for, uh, the well, World Cup, for the World Cup? I think probably, I mean, I think they've gone two different directions. Aren't they? Nike are kind of futuristic, Adidas have gone very much kind of retro. So it, I think it's perfectly valid to, to look to the future rather than heart to the past. Ah, really? Because the, the Germany retro. kit I thought looked pretty good and also the players inside it. Couldn't agree more, James. You I, really, the, I, uh, the, I like the kit, and the, I like what Germany did for some parts of the game, not all of them. Germany were playing uh, Spain in Dusseldorf in a big meeting of the last two World Cup winners. Yes, you were there, Raf. I was there, and uh, it was for once that rarest of things, an entertaining and really high-class international friendly, at least for sixty minutes, because then one million substitutions and the game just kind of frizzling, frizzling out. It was strange because. You had so much quality on the pitch and you had Spain doing their El Toque masterclass thing and Germany couldn't really get close to them. And then Germany kind of felt, oh, well, we'll show you that we can play a little bit as well. So it didn't feel entirely like a normal game. It felt more like a bit of a a show-off of, you know, we will play a bit. Yeah, we will play exactly. A bit like the scene in, in Bad. Exactly. You know, the funny thing is they don't dance off so much as dance together. And I always felt there was a message in that. There is a message in that. You can solve your differences... Through the medium yeah. of dance Bingo. or football. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a great game. I suspect that it was the perfect result for Louvre as well because a win might have 
put everybody in the mood, okay, we can beat Spain, you know, nothing will happen to us. We can just have to, we just turn up in Russia and we'll get the World Cup. A defeat and everybody in Germany would have said, oh, you know, this is bad and this is bad and this is bad. And the draw just gives him the breathing space to just fine-tune the team and the tactics. There'd be a whole different team turning up against, uh, turning out against Brazil mm. tomorrow night. And, and still leave everyone with a feeling that we need to do a lot more. But, you know, we have what it takes when it comes to playing. Absolutely. We'll talk more about the Brazil game a little bit later on because that's an interesting one, of course. There were a couple of sensational through balls in that Germany-Spain game. One from Sami Kadira, but the one from Iniesta for yeah. Spain's opener. <laughs> Iniesta was was astonishingly good. Yeah, he was administering a, a lesson to, to anybody. He, he faded a little, a little bit and they had to substitute him, had to rest him. You could see that he's perhaps no longer able to play this for 90 minutes. But it was just amazing to see. I mean, Spain went almost sort of a, to an extreme Spainness in that game, playing all these small midfielders. I think they had like five or six number 10s, or at least it felt like this on the pitch. Uh, maybe at the expense of having a bit of width and um, more balance. And physically, I think they suffered a little bit. But yeah, it was, it was wonderful to see them. Mm. Oh, ball of photography says, how are Spain fourth favourites for the World Cup? Before the Germany game, I thought they were the best team. But now I'm even more convinced. I watched, I, I watched it when I got home after the game on Friday in Paris. And I thought it was scary. The way that the two of them played for that hour, I thought it was scary. And then that's where I realised that France is nowhere near right now as good as... Germany and Spain. You might have realised that a little bit before in Paris. No, but the because game that France were playing. Yeah, but yeah, you know, true. But even more after seeing them, and I and I watched Brazil, Russia, Brazil before going to the Stade de France as uh -huh. well. And I even did. I mean, it's hard to judge Brazil on a game like that. I mm. think. And the kit looks Neymar, good though. Example, that, that kit, kit does look good. good. But I thought Germany and Spain were scarily good. Okay, uh, Jules, what happened at the park, uh, at the Stade de France? Uh, it was it was very good for 25 minutes. It was really, really good for 25 minutes. Uh, the front four of Lemar, Mbappé, Griezmann and Giroud played really well together. The second goal is is amazing, I think, uh, from Lemar. And then they stopped playing. It's almost like if the sort of uh, complacency that all French people have in them and arrogance just came out all at the same time together. So, you know, the, the sort of wide players, Lemar and Mbappé, stopped defending. Uh, Griezmann stopped dropping a bit deeper as well to defend. The fullbacks were just horribly bad defensively. And then just nothing when, yeah, they just stopped playing. There was no effort, nothing. And then mm. the second half, it's, it's been a long time since we've seen such a bad French team in, in, in 45 minutes. For anyone who wasn't following this, France were 2-0 up against mm. Colombia, but ended up losing 3-2, much to everyone's displeasure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there were 20,000... It felt like we were in Colombia, to be fair. Really? The atmosphere was incredible. They, they were everywhere in the stadium. And obviously, when they were 2-0 down, we couldn't hear them much. And then suddenly, after the Luis Muriel goal, who was a bit lucky just before halftime, it's like a cross and no one touches the ball and he goes in. And the second half, they were just... They came back, they changed they changed tactically the way they set up Colombia. And I have to give credit to Peckerman as much as I'm going to slaughter... Didier Deschamps, right. of course, for not reacting to it. And then they had the fans with them and James Rodriguez was playing so well and Falcao scored. The guy had one touch in the box, scored one goal. It was just amazing. And it was as good to see Colombia playing like this mm -hmm. than how bad France were in the second half. Who would you rather have as a manager, Unai Emery or wow. Didier Deschamps? I would rather have right now anyone but Didier Deschamps. I was so Even disappointed. Emery. Even Unai Emery, I'd wow. take. I'd take you, I think. 
<laughs> that's that says that's a lot. What, that's that's amazing. I was just so disappointed. No, no Paul Pogba in the in the starting lineup. No, which was strange because he was good at training during the week, and Deschamps and Lloris defended him through the week and said like. He can't be happy with what's happening at United. And he had a long, long chat with Deschamps on Wednesday where he basically told him everything that was going wrong with him and Mourinho at United and etc. And we thought this is the perfect time then for Deschamps to, you know, start him and show him some love and some confidence and everybody around him. And hopefully he's going to play well. And he was left on the bench and Matuidi and Conte started in the, in the two central midfielder in the French 4-4-2. Uh, and again, he... They, they did really well for the first half. Conte was outstanding. Uh, I've got more issues with Matuidi pref- being preferred to Pogba. But for a long time, it looked like no Pogba, no problem. And then, it obviously, all went pear-shaped. It all did. By the way, good as Colombia's comeback was, Portugal's was even better. Did you see this, Duncan? Yeah. Mm. yeah. So they're taking on Egypt. This was in Zurich, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And, uh, well, 56 minutes in, a typical bit of Mo Salah brilliance puts Hector Coupe's Egypt side one nil up and that's how it remained for until the 90 minutes and but yeah. then and then Ronaldo continued doing his Ronaldo thing um he seems to be fully rebooted now he scored in nine consecutive games now 19 goals in that spell um, yeah so two got one goal in the 92nd and then with the last kick of the game which is Karezma free kick he gets the winner yeah he's now up to 81 international goals which wow. is uh pretty good is it the third best I think is the record's 84, yeah, so he's it? pretty nailed on to beat I that. I think there's only two ahead of him, yeah. Wow. Duncan, so many big sides flexing their muscles this weekend. Which game did you most enjoy? Uh, well, I watched uh, the Netherlands-England. Oh, OK. The revolution is happening on telly. All right. Um, nice. And England did all right. I mean, it's quite hard to gauge because obviously Holland are particularly terrible at the moment. Um, but they did stick to the philosophy that Southgate's installed pretty well. So this was... Um, the best England team in 30 years against probably the worst Dutch side ever. <laughs> yeah. 1-0 yeah. the score, although there was a penalty that England should have been given. Yeah, Rashford was, was brought down. It was a definite penalty. But I think it was just... I saw a good tweet. Someone said it, it looked a little bit like a primary school teacher who has been you know, enamoured with Jurgen Klopp and they were trying to play that sort of way but they were you know they well, were Southgate was the primary school teacher and England were were, were his yeah they, they were you know they kind of took to their task really toddlers. enthusiastically okay. um, and you know if you kind of I, I ran some numbers after the game and um, you know England's pass completion was 86% in that game which is like historically really good for England not that pass completion actually means that much but it does sort of demonstrate that Southgate has got them playing a very different way to um, to the past I mean compare that with, with uh, Graham Taylor's team in Euro 92, which was 64%, which is industrial. That's certainly a lot And lower, agricultural. Yeah. What do, what do our two continental guests make of an England side who haven't conceded a goal since Slovakia scored against them in uh, September and beaten now in seven matches? I just love your optimism in this country after beating the Dutch 1-0. Well? With three shots on target. It's our first victory over the Netherlands in 20 years, I believe. Exactly, it is. And it also maintains numbers, Jules. England's yeah, proud, unbeaten record in Amsterdam. Never also, lost. Also, I, think, I, know I think he's going to win the World Cup. I really do think I'm he's going to no win the World Cup. I'm no statistician, but I think 1-0 is significantly better than 3-2. <laughs> yeah, but Colombia was definitely better than than Holland. Mm. No, I mean, it's good. I mean, yeah, OK, there's a plan and they stuck to it. I just didn't see much creativity anywhere in that game. And I don't, I don't think we've learned far m- much more after that game than 
than in, in the few games before that either. It just feels a little bit brittle. Like it feels like they're sticking to the plan that Southgate's got, which is good. But then, you know, uh, a disappointing result in the first game of the World Cup, and it will all, you know, revert to type. Mm. Rafa, can excuse you my ignorance, because I was actually um, at a game, so I couldn't see it. What was the plan? Well, it was just a kind of sort of hybrid Guardiola style. You know, every goal kick was played horizontally. I don't think Pickford really kicked long at any point. I mean, the goal basically came from Pickford uh, being halfway up the pitch and sort of playing a, an inside ball, which is, you know, if any, in the history of English football, it's very unusual to see mm. that. Um, and, you know, it did. It was very different to England performances of the past. It's not necessarily going to be any result in any kind of better outcome, but it is... It's interesting to see that there is a kind of progression from St George's Park. You know, there's all the different youth teams playing in the same way. Are they? Well, that's the plan, yeah. Had lots of right-backs. Yeah. Had a decent performance from Pickford. Yeah. But probably Butland will step in for a bit of a go in the next game, which is coming up Tuesday night, against an Italy side who, like uh, Holland, are a great name, but in some trouble at the moment. A Butland dire... Uh, Deli Ali and Jamie Vardy set to start. Vardy obviously didn't make a touch in the. Uh, it came on about 22 minutes to go. Didn't touch the ball. Really? Yeah. Wow. Which isn't that unusual. I mean, the average is about 20 in a Premier League game. But even so, apart from that, everything is great for England. Wow. Yeah. Striker comes in for the last 20 minutes, doesn't touch the ball, but that's okay. I mean, having not seen the game, I don't think there's any reason to be too dismissive of England. Honestly. No, no, no. I thought uh, there were some good things. It's, it's not a bad but... team. This. They're they're uh-huh. not quite up there with the. F- three or four very best, but I think they're in the bracket below. So they the can easily make the last eight. If you play a back three, you need, you, need, you need creative players, whether they're wide or whether they'll be more central. And I didn't think there was much creativity on, on Friday. That's, that's all. Mm. Well, next up for England, as I say, it is an Italy side who are fresh from a 2-0 defeat to Argentina's B team. Sergio Aguero and Leo Messi watching amused in the stands. At least someone was at the Etihad, as uh, Italy, who, as the Gazetta put it, once were kings and now reduced to sparring partners, uh, went down. To do, it wasn't a disastrous Azuri performance, at least until the kind of second half of the, the second half, but um, the Italian press very much the opinion that all this business over Ventura, maybe they've been focusing on the wrong problem, that the team actually wasn't very good. Insigne, for example, who everyone hammered Ventura for not fielding during the Sweden game, missing an absolute sitter in this game when it was still nil-nil. And then Buffon, who'd been Italy's best player, I think, through the game, made a string of key saves. Not much he could do about Banega's brilliant goal. A couple of shimmies and then just fired it in. And then Lanzini. Come on. As for the managerial situation, well, uh, the weekend saw... Billy Costa Corta, who's the vice president of the FIGC, is saying that they're going to make an announcement on the 20th of May. Names being mentioned are uh, Ancelotti, Mancini and Ranieri, but not so much Conte now on account of the fact, Jules, that word is he's tying things up with PSG. Is that right? I'm not, no, I don't think so. I think he was uh, on the short list, obviously. They met with uh, his brother and, and his agent. But they've met a lot of other people as well. And we've learned in Germany this weekend, for example, that Thomas Tuchel uh, has met with PSG. And from what th- they said... I thought he was going to Arsenal. No. Mm, no. Not That's, going to Arsenal. No. And Rafa can explain why. There's, there's obvious reasons why that, um, that won't be the case. But for example, um, we were also briefed in the week that Max Allegri and PSG were also getting 
quite close. Uh -huh. So it looks like uh, Luis Enrique is out of the of the race now. But between Conte, Allegri, and Tuchel, it should be one of them three. But you know, I'm not so sure anymore. Anyway, just to finish off this bit, England's group. How did they get on, Duncan? Well, oh, you know. Okay, go on. I then. do know now. <laughs> uh, Tunisia beat Iran, I think. Yep, that's right. One nil. Uh, and Panama lost to Denmark. They did. Tunisia's next opponents are Costa Rica, who beat Scotland 1-0 in Alex McLeish's second first game in charge. McTominay played an hour and the team got booed off. Yeah, they didn't play a uh, Guardiola-style type of football, from what I could see. <laughs> OK. Belgium uh, did not play this weekend, I don't believe. Did the Jules know? Uh, but they will be taking on Saudi Arabia on Tuesday evening. Well, that's enough fun for now. Very shortly, we're going to be looking at that managerial news and answering some of your questions. Listeners, our partnership with Paddy Power helps to keep this podcast free. And speaking of free, when you join Paddy's Rewards Club, every time you place five bets of £10 or more on any sport in a single week, Paddy will give you a free £10 bet the following week. Sign up now at paddypower.com. T's and C's apply. Max £10 bonus per person per week. Specific odds required. Exclude shops and cashed out bets. 18 plus only. BeGambleAware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Hey, everybody. Very shortly, we'll be hearing about Zlatan touching down in Los Angeles and looking ahead to Tuesday night's Brazil-Germany with a game of yesteryear. First, though, here's some questions. Gautam Kahadka says, can Honigstein clarify the Tuchel situation, please, Danka? Can you, Rafa? I can try. Um, He's been linked with Chelsea and with Arsenal, and now Jules is saying PSG. Yeah, What's well, first of all, let me take you back to the origin of the story, which is him leaving a message with, with Bayern saying, thanks for your interest, but I'm off. I've done a deal. I've promised someone that I'm going 10 days ago. That is the word. At which point Bayern... Frantically, if uh, Süddeutsche Zeitung's reporters to be believed enough, in them very well sourced, started um, saying, "Are you sure?" And all these guys phoned them up. Rummenigge, Hoeneß, Salihamidzic says, "No, but come on, you were our first choice, and think this over, etc." But I said, "No, I've done the deal, and I'm off." Kicker then the next day did a story saying he's to uh, he's going to Arsenal based on information they had from England. Everybody else, I think, being slightly better informed, uh, was saying. Absolutely nothing in that story. There are other big clubs interested, the ones you mentioned, PSG and uh, and Chelsea. There's a suggestion that he's going to a club that has a realistic chance of winning the Champions League, which would rule out Arsenal. But the bigger reason why he's not going to Arsenal is because Arsenal don't have a job to give to anyone. They're still working on the assumption that it's down to Wenger to decide what he wants to do. He has made absolutely no indication that he wants to leave at the end of the summer and no one will pull the trigger before that. So the idea that he could have signed a deal with a club that has still a manager in place and is very reluctant to make the decision for him, this just doesn't work in practice. So not Arsenal. Jules, is that a fair appraisal of the Wenger situation still? Yeah, completely. It's still down to him whether you know he will stay or not. He, he, he has a year left on his contract and I still can't see him not you know, going until the end of his contract. For me, he's going to try to hang on and if if at the club they don't tell him that he's sacked, then he will stay and still be there next season. So which club do you think that Thomas Tuchel has done a deal with, Rafa? Well, I don't know. I'm waiting to, to hear from from his people to see if they can 
clarify the situation a little bit. Of course, they're dependent on what the club wants to do. It's not really their decision to make, so they can only put you in the sort of the right direction. And the steering that colleagues have received so far is that it's Chelsea or PSG in that kind of uh, general vicinity. Um, I have it on pretty good authority that Thomas Tuchel made a very good impression with uh, Marina Granovskaya in a meeting they've had. I don't know how recent that meeting was because remember they were talking to him before the start of this season on the assumption that Conte might actually go. So they're already sounding off, uh, sounding him out then. I don't know how that's been picked up or intensified or, or moved forward in, in recent uh, days. And with PSG, it's an interesting one because he is very Francophile. He speaks good French. His wife speaks excellent French. And if Jules is to believe, but he can explain a little bit more about this, even I think some of the comments that are coming out of the club now look a little bit different in the light of the latest revelation that Tuchel might be in the running. What kind of comments, Jules? Yeah, we were told that um, you know to find the next manager, we need to think a bit of the box. And by that, they meant we think that instead of all the names... See, with the same names repeated all the time, Conte or Luis Enrique or, you know, people like that, Mon uh, Mancini. And no one really in France wrote about Tuchel being either a contender or even a favourite. And I think that's maybe where they were sort of guiding us or, you know, steering us, if you want to. Although uh, on Friday, for example, Thursday and Friday, there was a few reports about Max Allegri being also a front runner for the job. And I do think people, some people at the club really like him. But the thing with Tuchel, though, is they always said they wanted a big, big name. And Tuchel is a big name, but not as big as, you know, someone like Conte who won more than him, for example, who has more experience, or mm. even someone like Allegri. However, they also... I think admire the the genius that Thomas Tuchel has and his is in terms of a football manager, in terms of his tactics and everything. I find it is hundred times much better than than Ryan Emery, but in many ways he's a very similar type of coach who is very obsessed with the tactics and you know with videos and with stats. And I've got nothing against stats, Duncan, but that kind of stuff. And for example, I don't know how Neymar would react to having a coach like this, who basically is going to make him work hard and a lot. If you see what I mean. So it's a, it's a very, very interesting one, I think. Okay. As a PSG fan, I'll be very, very happy to have Thomas Tuchel as a manager. Which non-footballing element of the World Cup are you most looking forward to? Ask VBL. Does anyone enjoy opening ceremonies, for example? What's the most enjoyable thing about World Cups for journalists other than the football? String of questions there, Rafa. You have a great time at World Cups, don't you? It you, you hang out where they are. Big... <laughs> well, you, okay, what's your a... setup for, for Russia then? I'll be staying with my colleagues and good uh, dear, Which colleagues dear are friends, uh, Gabriele Marcotti and Guillaume Balaguer. Right. Yeah. Punditry Central. Yeah. It's enjoyable and stressful in equal measures. Right. Because but you enjoy it just the doesn't stop. The debate just does not stop. Uh-huh. Um, no, of course it's you know it's a great privilege to be able to to go and work at a World Cup um, for for so many weeks and and watch football for for a living and write about it. And what do you enjoy the most? Not get too too jaded about it. I enjoy just being there. I mean, you know, you go to a World Cup final. That is still even doesn't matter who's in it is is a momentous occasion that you will always remember. It's just the privilege to be there. Yeah. He, like, right. he likes his restaurant as well. After the Euros 2016, when we came back, and I hadn't seen him for a few days, and uh, he came back and said, oh, so did you... In oh, the food in Paris was just amazing. Yeah. Well, the food yeah. in Paris was considerably better than the football <laughs> during the Euros. Without, you know. Fair enough. Mm. 
We used to um, we 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 haven't done it in in years two thousand twenty sixteen. Sorry, but in the previous competitions, we used to have a, a French media football team, and we used to play against the journalists of other countries. Uh-huh. Sometimes having like ex pros who are now pundits playing with us and against us. And for example, at the Euro twenty twelve in Ukraine, uh, we had that game against the English press, and we had Robert Pires with us. And they had Chris Wardle, Chris Camara, and Steve Claridge. How did it finish, Jules? Oh, we smashed them 6-1. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, Chris Camara, if you didn't know, you couldn't have guessed the guy ever played football in his whole life before. Uh, Steve Claridge still looked good, and Chris Wardle couldn't run, but could still pass the ball 60 yards, either with his right foot or his left foot. It was amazing. And there was well, that time, in the second half, sorry, Jim, where Pires had the ball and Chris Woodall came in and you had Chris Woodall against Robert Pires on a football pitch, yes. which you would have never seen before. No. Nope. Right there. It was awesome. Duncan. I think in terms of uh, non-football stuff, we need we need a new Pickles. Pickles the dog. Oh. Who rescued the 66 World Cup, discovered the World Cup when it went missing in a hedge, right. but then tragically died the next year. Yes. But made a film in between those two events. Yeah. yeah. What was the film the called? The Brian, I can't remember. It was right. like a... It was based... I know what it's called. Do you? The Spy with a Cold Nose. That was it. Yeah. Wow, what a great title. <laughs> um, that's that's an book. unexpected uh, little... Little tangent. What what are you recommending then? Some kind of animal-based story just to capture the nation's heart. Yeah, I think that's what we need. Or maybe Diana Ross penalty as Pi okay. 94. Well, there's still time for something like that. The spy with the cold nose, Raph. Have you seen that? I have not seen it. No. It's quite hard to track down. I tried, but yeah. Right. But he yeah he got asphy- asphyxiated the following year. Listeners, if you want to combine your knowledge of the footy with your knowledge of the footsie, then you need to get yourself over to the Football Stock Market Football Index. Football Index is a new way to profit from your knowledge of the Premier League, League One, Serie A, La Liga and beyond. Buy and sell players, build a portfolio, earn dividends and sell at a profit. Because you listen to the Totally Football Show, you can try Football Index and trade up to £1,000 entirely risk-free. Just head to footballindex.co.uk, enter the promo code TOTALLY, and if you don't love Football Index, you'll get a full refund with their seven-day money-back guarantee. Download the app or play online at footballindex.co.uk and become a football trader today. T's and C's apply. You must be over 18. Deposit required. And please, trade responsibly. Football League news, everybody. No championship this weekend. But there were still loads of interesting stories from Leagues 1 and 2 featuring, Duncan, am I right, debuts for Lee Boyer at Charlton and Martin Allen continuing his Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor-esque it's relationship with Barnet. one of the, one of the great romances of the 21st century, yeah. So he's back at Barnet. Fifth spell. Ooh. Yeah. Fifth, I mean, it could be good this time. I think this time <laughs> they've matured enough to make a real go of it, although it didn't start off in the best of fashion against another of his old clubs. Yeah, they lost at Luton. Mm. The bottom of the table, though. Barnet. Yeah, it looks bad. Yeah. They've got a nice bar in their away end, though, so it'd be a shame for them to go down. Right. I know all about Barnet problems, of course. You can find out more about all that Football League stuff with Ian McIntosh and Caroline Barker in the Totally Football League show on Tuesday. If you'd like to know about Football Manager, then check out the Match of the Day Premier League show on the iPlayer, Jules. Yeah. Because there's a little feature at the end of the show on Football Manager featuring Ian and a cameo from producer Ben, who plays a psychiatrist. The show also features contributions from James Horncastle and David Priest. Where was our email, Rafa? (laughs) 
because you guys do more was, than enough I, for the BBC. Well, we need a psychiatrist. I was asked to do it as well. I couldn't go with with Horney. Uh, anyway, that's on the iPlayer. Now, uh, it wasn't just the Football League that was in action this week. Major League Soccer carried on willy-nilly despite FIFA's international break, which I'm a bit surprised about. But they went and had another round of games. But perhaps the biggest news was the fact that they also announced Zlatan Ibrahimovic's arrival at Los Angeles Galaxy. It's more Ibra who announced himself. You're right, with this advert. Los Angeles. Welcome to Zlatan. Oh, responding to a question on whether Los Angeles was big enough to handle his personality, the Swede told the LA Times, if it's not, I'll make it bigger. <laughs> hey. Just... Oh, you got to love him. Well, he signed a massively reduced contract, uh, down, I think, 95%. So that shows uh, some goodwill. But how is his arrival going down in the States? We asked George Qureshi, editor of Howler magazine. You know, the, the, the general reaction and the one that I'm choosing to uh, to adhere to is this seems like a terrible mistake, possibly, but bring it on. We're, we're really excited. You know, who, who wouldn't be excited to have Zlatan in, uh, in, in their league, in their, in their country? I mean, doing all the things that he does on the field and off the field. No question he's box office, George, but it feels like it harks back a bit to the old days of MLS where you used to bring in ageing players for their PR value rather than what they could do on the pitch. It's it's actually a very old story. You know, how many best-selling writers have ended up in, in Hollywood? I mean, Scott Fitzgerald did it, Faulkner, Capote. Now we've got Zlatan in L.A. Uh, the difference is those guys, you know, they were all cashing in, whereas Zlatan is, is making, I think, after uh, after you divide it up by a week, which you guys like to do, it's $30,000 a week, which is a wow. significant pay cut from, from what he was making in, in United, I guess. So is it going to work out for L.A., do you think? Well, look, if he's anywhere close to the player he was uh, for, for United, I mean, he was scoring goals. And d- don't forget, that team was managed by Jose Mourinho. So it's not, not that easy. Um, you know, he'll be, he'll be magnificent. And uh, he, he has been everywhere he's gone in his career. You know, it's a two-year contract. So, you know, if he can keep it going for, for a little while longer, then it'll be great. And then off the field, I think the Galaxy were looking at this and, and seeing it as an opportunity to sort of recapture some of the attention in, in their town. They've got a new rival that's doing well and, and it building a new stadium that's, um, you know, significantly closer to, to, to downtown and to the, the places where people, you know, Hollywood and, and Silver Lake and, and Santa Monica and those, those, those neighborhoods that they want to draw from. Uh, so it's a way to sort of, uh, try to reclaim some of that, some of that juice, uh, that, that they may have lost after having a bad season, having some of the big names they've had in the past retire. You've got, you know, Robbie Keane is no longer there. Landon Donovan is no longer there. Uh, David Beckham is long gone. Um, so yeah, this is sort of, in keeping with the Galaxy model and uh, Zlatan, if he can, man, if he can play, uh, which hopefully he will. I mean, I think it'll be fascinating. And when is he slated to make his debut? Uh, They're talking about possibly having him in for the first LA Derby against this new LAFC club. So uh, if that happens, I think that's in six days. Uh, That would be, that would be quite a uh, a quick turnaround. And I, I, I tend to think that, you know, if, if the galaxy is taking this seriously, they, they won't, they won't even dress him because, um, you know, you'd like to think that the league has matured, you know, this will be sort of a, a little bit of a test for, for the league has it hasn't matured to the point where they can make a signing like Zlatan and, and resist the urge to, to, you know, put him in the shop window, uh, uh, immediately, um, keep him on the bench, get him ready, like treat this like a real, like a real signing that's going to help your club and not just the commercial boon that it's obviously going to be, uh, is, is my point. 
Well, it all sounds really positive with new teams, new stadiums, the attendance record going up and up and up. Are there any clouds potentially on the MLS horizon, George? Well, you know, obviously the the U.S. isn't playing in the World Cup, <laughs> so yeah. uh, every four years that was a it's been a guaranteed bump in interest in the league and interest in the sport. Um, you know, as someone who, who runs a, a soccer magazine, I can tell you that, um, you know, every time uh, there's a World Cup, just the, the amount of interest, the, the you know, the, the attention paid around the country just skyrockets. So it's, 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 uh, it's, it's it remains to be seen whether you know, we'll be able to capture some of that this summer. I, I, I hope to, I hope to think that, that we, uh, that we will, because it's still such a, such an amazing event. And I think there are enough people here who care. Um, but yeah, you know, having, having MLS take a, a little break through the world cup will hopefully give it a little more oxygen. And, uh, when, when it comes back, um, hopefully people will, will be tuning in. It's looking exciting over in MLS. Duncan, you a fan? Um, yeah. Are you? Yeah. yeah Who's they, your team? I don't have a team. You can't support just football. Well, no. The, the thing, the good thing with MLS is that they're actually, you know, because they don't have the history, they don't have the kind of, uh, you know, financial strength of European clubs. They are quite open to, um, you know, data analysis and stuff. And there's been some good, uh, some good case studies of people and clubs using data really, uh, really well over there. Okay. Mm. Toronto, for instance. Well, what have they done with it? They just used it really well to scout players because obviously they don't, have, you know, with the draft as well. It's it's quite a kind of complex um, way of, you know, you can't just go out and buy someone. Um, yeah, well, you can with Latan clearly, but you know, it's it's for to build a squad. It's a it's a sort of longer process, right? Um, and yeah, they do people right stuff. now will be making kind of cynical questions about what was the stat that led them to sign Jose Altidore. But he's <laughs> that is true. Well, he's actually he's remarkably effective yeah, in MLS. Well, so, but he has got Jovinko laying on delicious little lobs. Well, there we go. And, and, and that, as he was in the last game I saw, which actually wasn't this weekend because I didn't even realise they were playing. I thought they were on in a break. Anyway, uh, also doing well in MLS are currently Patrick Vieira, who's top of Eastern Conference with New York City FC. And uh, our friend Tata Martino is doing brilliantly as well with Atlanta. Oh, you've got to love Atlanta. Yeah. They've got Miguel Almiron, who's probably the best player last season, who is a fantastic left foot number 10 player. And more importantly, their fans are incredible. For yeah. a new franchise, because it's only their second season in, it's remarkable what they've built so far. And yeah, they look very good. And also, what's interesting about MLS quickly is that they attract now the best young South American players who usually used to go to, to Europe quite young. And a lot of them, like Almiron, for example, go first to MLS uh, to sort of you know, continue the development. And then... Well, we see some some then move to Europe, but it's interesting to see that in that sort of change of pattern in the way South American young players used to see their careers. Mm. All right, well, it all sounds very positive. Duncan, your book, Outside the Box, A Statistical Journey Through the History of Football, which has been described by some as insightful, others have gone with wry, and still, <laughs> still others have said hugely entertaining, has an especially excellent chapter on the World Cup in which you crunch the numbers, and what kind of statistical juice do you get out the other end? Some thick, delicious juice. Um, we've analysed every World Cup from 1966 onwards. Right. Um, mainly because that was the first one where all the games were televised. Uh-huh. Um, and it's interesting because it's the 
biggest long data set in football, really. So you actually can see how the game has changed over the decades. So if you go back to 66 or 1970, teams just had loads and loads of shots and no one really passed. It was almost like a kind of basketball. You have a shot, we have a shot. Um, the 1966 final between England and Germany, 77 shots in one game, which wow. is a lot. Um, and then you kind of go forward through the through the years and you get to 2010 and it's completely reversed. You know, hardly any shots. Spain winning the World Cup with only eight goals. Um, and, you know, but their passing, obviously, would, they would outpass every team from 66. Mm. Um, Do you see this as being cyclical? Will we return to a, a, a shot-tastic World Cup soon? I don't think so. I think sort of advancements in uh, physical conditioning and that's what's you know the big change really if you look at if you ever watch a game from the 50s or 60s no one tracks back mainly because they probably would collapse if they did also the boots they would yeah chafing but um it's you know it's very interesting you can obviously pull out a lot of of good insights you also point out that there's there's been a a real fall off in in kind of emblematic players or totemic players who who've defined a world cup yeah i mean the kind of essence of the chapter was why I mean, this is probably quite Anglo-centric, but why aren't World Cups as exciting anymore? Which I think a lot of people in this country would would probably um, concede. And I think there's a number of reasons. Obviously, England haven't really played in a world, well in a World Cup for 20, 24 years, probably. Um, but, but is that the perception abroad? Would you say that World Cups are not as exciting as they used to be? No. No, no. It's hugely exciting. Yeah. So it is an English thing. So it clearly is an English thing. But I think, I think there are, there are changes that have uh, affected everyone, no matter right. what country you're from. I think um, we've gone from a time where there was no football on telly. So obviously, when a World Cup came, everyone was very excited because you could watch a lot of games mm. at the only time, um, and you got to see players that you didn't, that you knew about, but you'd never really seen. So you know, you might have heard of Maradona, you might have heard of Zico, but you might not have ever seen them play. And suddenly, there was this four-week period where they were on your telly every day. But that said. Not since probably Zidane in 98 has there been a player who really defined a World Cup. Yeah, and I think that's obviously a, you know, part of the fact that teams are much more kind of units now compared right. to, you know, the, the, you know, Maradona dragging Argentina to the World Cup uh, in 86 and it, probably even more impressively to the final in 1990 when they really were not very good. Mm. It, you know, that's very unlikely to happen now. Um, you know, teams are, are much more adept at, at searching out the opposition's weaknesses. Yeah, but it, there's also a, a perception issue here because for a lot of people, Por- Portugal won the Euros, ergo Ronaldo was the defining man of the Euros. That's how it will be remembered, well, superficially. Who would, who, would, who would think that, Rafa? A lot of people will identify the Euros with but Ronaldo's I, tournament. Even I'm not sure he, they would necessarily anymore. I think... You know, that's kind of because Ronaldo's club career is so exalted and, and on TV all the time, it's almost like a lot of people forget he's even won the Euros in some respects. Especially because of the way the final was, no? But there was a quote as well from Beckenbauer in uh, the late 90s when he said he'd see into the future when the biggest games were between clubs and not countries, which at the time seemed a bit outlandish. But I think we definitely have reached that point now. Ooh. Yes and no. I mean, in terms of ratings, club competition is nowhere near. But isn't that more level. due to kind of TV rights deals? The fact that World Cups generally are on kind of terrestrial telly. No, of Good course point. it's chi- it's a chicken and egg situation. But I think there's no. I think a World Cup unites a nation for yeah. obvious reasons a lot more than any other competition. I just think that we probably have a more discerning 
fan base now that, you know, a lot of the criticisms of recent tournaments, Euro 2016, even elements of the last World Cup were, oh, this football's not as good as normal. Why, why is this player who I love and rate at clubs not as good in this national team? I think that's kind of an ongoing problem. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. I, I think, though, my, my view is that it could change this year because you, ha- you will have three or four absolutely outstanding sides who could win the Champions League if they were to play in it. Oh, what, national teams who could win yes. the Champions League? Yes, which is not a situation that you could have said in 2002 or even in 06. Interesting. Duncan, your top stat? Well, we can all remember, well, we can't all remember, clearly, but the 1970 World Cup, the, uh, the most famous Brazilian team. Yes. Who considered the most fouls in that tournament? Oh, this wasn't the stat I was expecting, but I've got. There's another one that's even more amazing. So that Brazilian team in uh, 1970. Which one were you expecting? We'll, be, we'll come on to that in a second. Yeah. So the Brazil team in 1970. Yeah. The which player? The beautiful fr- game from that Seleção side contributed the most fouls. No, this is in the whole tournament. Oh, in the whole tournament of any player was the notable hatchet man Pele. Really? Yeah. More fouls than anyone in the yeah. 1970 World Cup. Yeah. That's extraordinary, and yet not as amazing as this. The fact that Steve Staunton, of the cap-wearing heroics, uh, played as many World Cup games as Johan Cruyff and Paul Gascoigne combined. Oh! I'm sorry, but this is not doing it for me. You build it up so much, I was expecting... Steve Staunton, yeah. yeah I couldn't Cruyff and Gazza put together, still. he's played more World Cups. But Johan Cruyff played... So how, how many games is that? 13 games. All right, how about the Pele stat then? Did you like that one? Yeah, I prefer most of Pele stats. Oh, yeah? Okay. Steve Stanton. Right. Well, for those who think World Cup football's not exciting anymore, after this, we're going to go back to a game from just towards the end of the last tournament, which is one of the greatest matches of all time. Listeners, do you like shaving and looking smooth and clean? Yes! But do you enjoy having to go to the shops for new razors and other shaving supplies? No! No! Well, Cornerstone gives you everything you need for a great shave and they'll deliver it all right to your door. Cornerstone's super sharp, award-winning blades are engineered in Germany, which is always a good sign, and their range of balms, creams and exfoliators are all environmentally friendly, alcohol-free and suitable for the most sensitive skin. Get £10 off your first order and check out the range for yourself at cornerstone.co.uk totally and find out why tens of thousands of men have switched over to Cornerstone. Yep, Tuesday night, Germany are taking on Brazil. Germany's B team. Oh. Yeah, loads of changes. Brazil loads of changes. Probably as well, to be fair. Really? But, yeah, I think okay, Chichi's this going to is... make some changes too. But it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Not quite the same magnitude as the last time the two. Right. Two well, the, the two nations did meet in the final of the Olympics in 2016. That doesn't count. That doesn't count. So the last real meeting was, of course, the semi-final in Brazil in 2014. Both sides say that they're not thinking about it ahead of Tuesday's game, which given Tony Cruz, for once, sent out his Happy New Year for 2017, featuring a picture of the scoreboard saying 1-7, yeah. I think nice is a bit touch. rich. They'll um, be thinking about it, particularly... Yeah, the, but that was 18 uh, months ago, yeah, but nearly. 70 de- 17 days ago, the official Germany, Germany Federation uh-huh. Twitter account tweeted, it's only in... And then the photo of the one seven scoreline in seventeen days that we meet again. <laughs> oh, uh, well, if they're not thinking about it, we are because it's time to turn back the clock. 
Johnny Hayes Jazz. Controversial choice in this studio, I have to say, Jules. Yeah, I can imagine. But not a controversial moment to look back on. It was the 8th of July 2014 in Belo Horizonte, World Cup semi-final. 58,141 people in attendance, 22 degrees and 51% humidity, Duncan. That's a good humidity. That humidity equals goals, in my experience. Well, it certainly did. Your experience does not lie. As these two giants of world football came face-to-face, on the one hand, Germany, well, Germany, undefeated, maybe not spectacular this far, a team that had marched rather than danced its way into this semi-final clash with the Brazil side, who were without Thiago Silva and without Neymar too, but had, in their favour, an incredible home record, unbeaten... In 62 games at home in competitive matches, going all the way back to the mid-70s. Wow. Rafa, as you headed into your TV studio for this game, that must have been weighing heavy on your mind. I was very worried. I, I thought this is going to be really tough for Germany. They're not only taking on Brazil, which had been given away very few chances, looked so strong, uh, looked so dangerous from set pieces, scored many goals. Uh, but really taking on a whole nation and taking on kind of the script of, of the World Cup. It was all designed, it was all laid out for Brazil to triumph. And then, of course, it all kind of just collapsed, like it was just a facade and nothing behind it. No no real, no real weight, no real structure to it. The fragility was just astonishing. And to Germany's credit, like a good team, they felt that on the pitch. And instead of them taking it slow and says, you know, let's just protect that one lead or, you know, let's not do anything silly, they just really went for the kill. And, of course, within half an hour, it was 5-0 and, and the game was over. And we all looked at each other. It was in the BBC studio with Tim Vickery and just could not could not believe what we were seeing. Mm-hmm. And I guess the feeling was, was very much shared by... <laughs> by most Brazilians. All, all over the world, yeah. in fact. So no Thiago Silva suspended, Dante coming in, and the notion was it wouldn't be too much of a problem because they had the, the most expensive defender in the world, David Luiz, lining up beside him, as well as QPR, the championship goalkeeper, Julia Cesar. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and Mike Connor right back as well. And Mike Connor right back. Also, they had a cardboard Mick Jagger in the stands. Don't know if you remember that? <laughs> yeah. Because he's known as a, internationally a jinx on your team. So throughout that World Cup, they've been dressing him up, not just Brazil fans, but also... Uh, the Dutch fans against Argentina had a Mick Jagger there with an Argentina shirt on. The notion is that if he turns up and supports your team, they will lose. There's a, a long series of precedents on this right. front. So there was a cardboard Mick Jagger saying, let's go Germany. Um, but it didn't work. Barely 11 minutes in, Duncan, it began. Yeah. Five, as Rafa said, five up by 29 minutes. They've actually they scored as many goals in 29 minutes, Germany, as England have in the last two World Cups. <laughs> But, you know, England have got got passion, so... That's a big start. I prefer that to Staunton and Pelé. Just say that again. Uh, So Germany, after 29 minutes, were five up, which is as many goals in 29 minutes as England have scored in the last two World Cups combined. (laughs) Wow. But it's all going to change this summer, don't worry. Right. Muller in there as well. So when the first goal goes in, it's on 11 minutes from Cruz's corner. David Luiz and and Dante both left completely... Uh, by um, old space-finding um, Thomas Muller. Who picked him up? No one picked him up. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an unbelievable goal because you just don't expect a striker to have a free shot, not let alone a header, but a free shot on goal from basically from the six-yard line. 
Um, it was astonishing. I mean, they they tried, you know, there was a bit of uh, maybe choreographed movement and trying to block a few people. But I think in the end, Muller kind of just wandered in there and just looked around and there was no one near him. And, of course, that then leads to Brazil chasing the game and uh, David Lewis, namely, completely self-destructing with just being out of position the whole time, going for crazy tackles, making all the wrong decisions. And Germany's counterattack is really precise and and to the point and, and just kills them off. That's six minutes, Jules. Have you ever seen anything, not just in World Cup football, but... Any football? Never. I went to make a cup of tea. I was I was in London, and I came back, and they'd scored three already. It was ridiculous. What? What? what a a long led you it's to not make a, long a cup, cup of tea. tea. I make one for me, one for my wife. You know, I get a few. But the scoreline was what one nil, and you went. So it was one nil. I went, and I will now the... make a cup of tea. Yeah, you know. So I said, okay, one nil. Fact, there were, a cup of tea. Yeah, there were 179 seconds between the second and fourth. Yeah, goal, so I didn't expect. Depends on how good your kettle. Well, my kettle is good, but you know, I take my time. I like. But when you wait for half time or something? Because I don't know why actually. That's a I catastrophic thought, error no, I did on think, your part. No, I did think that the game was finished at one nil. Oh, I okay. thought it was the worst start ever for Brazil mm. because, like Rafa said, they would chase the game, and this Germany team was so good on the counter, and it was. So there was so much space and so much movement that I thought it's going to be hard. Do we think that there was a slight issue as well that they made such a big deal before the match about Neymar not playing? They kind of came out holding his shirt almost as if he'd been kidnapped or something. It, it, it was... didn't help, I think. Mm. That that kind of emotional overload that mm. they created. And it, it got me thinking a little bit of how Bayern approached the Champions League final in 2012. But they put so much emphasis on you're at home and this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and uh, and you're in home, you know, in your own city, um, in front of your own fans, you're at home. <laughs> and it just, that was just for six, eight months, you know, mm. leading up to the final. And for Brazil, that must have been the last four years, effectively. Well, yeah, longer even, because ever, since 1950, there's always been the, the shadow hanging over Correct. them. Over. And then with Neymar, yeah, and Neymar just seemed like complete overkill. So they hung, overload. they hoisted his jersey during the uh, national anthems and they were all wearing Forza Neymar baseball caps. <laughs> Again, they yeah. followed Steve and what Thornton's Thiago Silva example. must have thought sitting in the stands watching this? Um, but anyway, so half-time, 5-0 up. Military police apparently is sent into the stadium to maintain order. Ricky Gervais tweeting, this won't be the first time that thousands of Germans will have to lie low in Brazil for a while for their own safety. That was a good one. That was a good one. But they, I think they mostly went to Argentina, but still, yeah. the joke stands. What's amazing, though, is Miroslav Klose scored two goals in that six-minute spell where they yeah. scored the four, beating Ronaldo, you know, the Brazilian Ronaldo, to become the top goal scorer in, in World Cup history. And, OK, unless you do it in a World Cup final with a, with a winning goal and it's amazing, there's no better way than doing it in a semi-final against Brazil, in Brazil, beating yeah. their best striker and one of their what, top three players ever by scoring two goals like that. It's, it's getting embarrassing. It could be four. It's turned square closer. It's 4-0 to Germany. After 25 minutes, Fernandinho caught in possession. Brazil are being humiliated, humbled and taken apart by Germany. Unbelievable. So unprofessional. Less a good closing down. Yeah, didn't have the best stroker on the field that day. They did have Fred, who according to Opta, Duncan, I don't know if this was your work, Failed to make a single tackle, cross, run or interception during the match. In fact, when you see his heat map, given the number of kickoffs they had to make, it's, it's <laughs> almost entirely in the centre circle. But the humidity would have affected the heat. That's so. true. <laughs> yeah. 
That's true. I mean, it was, it was Dante terri- got pilloried for this afterwards, but David Luiz, also Marcelo, watching back the highlights. Were you, yeah, you, it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not a very good Brazil team, though. It's not, a very, it's not a very good Brazil squad. Overall, if you look at the bench on that day, I mean, Joe is on the bench. Come on. I mean, Fred starts, and then if you look at the bench, it's like, oh, the guy on the bench is, is worse than the, the striker who's already very bad on the pitch. Compa- well, if you compare round, it you with, normally, with the yeah. one that's going to go to Russia, for example, it's like... Four years, well, four, the one four years that, on is crazy. The one that I assumed would be taking on Germany this time, but you're saying it's going to be a B team. Well, yeah, I think Chichi is going to make... I think all the countries, you can't play the same players Friday, Tuesday, so they're mm. going, everybody's going to make a few changes. Okay. It's a lovely little reverse ball. Schaller! Oh! Andre Schaller! It's seven! Stunning finish. I mean, every one of these is Raffer, just... at the time, you were very composed and, and there was a lot of commiserations with the, the Brazilian people in their time of suffering, but this is beyond your wildest dreams, 7-1. Yeah, but a little bit like the players, it felt unreal. It almost felt a little bit underwhelming because it was too easy in the end. It did not give you that battle, that fight that they thought they might have to survive to you know claw their way into the final against the host it was just we just turned up and um, all they had to do is keep their heads in light of a brazil team that that lost theirs and that then became a problem going into the final because as much as they tried not to listen to that little voice saying oh you just beat brazil 7-1 that voice still was saying to you, oh, we just beat Brazil 7-1. You know, what can possibly go wrong now? We will win the World Cup. And it created a very strange, I think, few days with Germany really having to readjust mentally to the fact that the 7-1 would be not only meaningless, but perhaps even work against them if they are now not winning this thing against Argentina. People say, you know, you are probably the most stupid team ever. You beat the whole 7-1 and then who's against a decent but not amazing Argentina team so it was it was a strange really strange strange experience of course the whole second half was strange because Germany tried their best not to go into showboating mode Um, at the same time they felt if we just slow down completely we're also disrespecting effectively the opposition Um, they also were totally adamant that they didn't want to give any sort of opportunity for Brazil to come back because a few months before they had led against Sweden 4-0 and somehow conceded four goals in Berlin to draw uh, one of the World Cup qualifiers 4-4. And, you know, if you can score five goals against Brazil, why can't they score five against you? So that was in the back of the mind as well. So the, the second half was very kind of a very strange thing with the, the crowd turning completely on Brazil and Germany kind of thinking, torn between empathy and, you know, we have to do a job and what is happening here? Um, it was a very surreal experience. Must have been difficult experience. for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how how unusual was this match in a statistical sense? Well, kind of to back up what Raf was saying there, I mean, it was almost not a game of two halves, but a game of one half. I mean, second half, Brazil uh, had 16 shots, which is more than Germany had in the whole match. So they, did how, it, they didn't ever look at any point like they were going to come back but they you know it was partly due to Germany sitting back a little bit um, but it was very much a case of yeah just trying to it was it was going through the motions I think this is why it can't ever really be considered a classic match in a sense because if it had been 4-3 or 5-4 then it would have kind of lived down the ages but it, as you said it was almost so unsettling and unreal it kind of it didn't feel like a world cup it felt like a, 
a strange auto windscreen tie. <laughs> what was weird as well is that Germany struggled against Algeria in the last 16 and then even against France in the quarters, they won one nil again, but it was not that convincing. And then they go into that semi-final and this, they won 7-1. It's ridiculous. It was extraordinary. But part of it, I guess, as you say, was that it was a Brazil team on the brink of a nervous breakdown and, and they had it. Yeah, but they didn't know that before. No. I mean, they they had a maybe a um, kind of intuition that all this was built on a lot of uh, emotional undercurrents that perhaps weren't sustainable but they 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 realized or they they prepared for for really for the most horrific experience uh, possible and it didn't didn't materialize there's a really good book on all of this by the way what's it called, called das reboot das yeah, reboot yeah, if you want to read a bit more about how germany won the world cup right how they went on to beat argentina mario goetze brazil for their part went into the third, fourth playoff and lost to Holland 3-0, I think it was, Duncan, wasn't it? Yeah. After which gone. Phil Scolari resigned. Dunga came in, then Brazil failed at the Copa America, and then Chiche arrived and is currently on an excellent run. Oh, according to Nord Presser, one drunk Dutchman earned 1.3 million euros for betting on 7-1 as the outcome of that semi-final. Really? Yeah, apparently seven people worldwide had bet, bet on 7-1. That can only be a drunk bet. Like, but he put just... 200 euros on it. This is according to this story in Nord Presse. And wow. earned 1.3 million yeah. euros. What's the odds on that? 200 euros? Yeah. That works out really generous odds. Well, that's what we're known for. Anyway, you got to believe that whichever kind of team they put out when they take the field, where are they taking the field this year? In Berlin, in the in Olympic Berlin, Stadium. That Brazil are going to be thinking about that match. No Neymar. Because he is once again out no, injured. Thomas Müller, no Mesut Özil. Right. They've gone home. But, uh, well, it's going to be a big game. A big game. England, in the meantime, will be taking on Italy. And there's various other exciting matches as well, which we'll come back and review on Thursday. Anything else you want to add about this international break, Jules? I'm going to Russia tomorrow, to St. Petersburg, for Russia-France tomorrow. Okay, yes, Russia-France. First time ever in Russia, three months before Rafa, me and the others uh, go there for the World Cup, so it'll be interesting. That will be. Also on Tuesday, by the way, I didn't mention Spain taking on Argentina. Could be interesting. That would that be good, will, yeah. With Messi and, and, and Aguero held back for, for that match. Nice. Mm. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for being here today. Let's, having chatted about the football, get the odds from Paddy Power with Ian. Thanks, James. I've got Lee Price from Paddy Power on the line. Lee, England on Friday night. They were all right, weren't they, against uh, against the Dutch? Has that made any difference to their odds for the World Cup? They were all right, and I have to say it started one half-decent performance against a less-than-decent opposition, and I'm already convinced we're going to win it. Um, <laughs> the Paddy Power traders, however, are less giddy, possibly because they're Irish, more likely because they're sensible, uh, but it's made no difference to England's odds in Russia. Uh, they're still 16 to 1 to win the thing, but maybe Italy should offer a stern examination, which might influence the odds. 16 to 1, where does that put England sort of in the running order? But sort of about sixth or seventh favourites? Yeah, exactly. So, sort of dark horse territory, you've been generous. Uh, also, runs is perhaps a more accurate title. <laughs> we shall see. Germany, Brazil is uh, tomorrow night, Tuesday night. Um, any chance of a repeat of the 7 1? Uh, I would say no, actually. I think Germany and Brazil are very much in that category of front runners to win the competition. It's a potential final, depending on how the draw falls. So the 7-1 seems impossible. Both sides have a game plan and the momentum. 
Uh, they should be there or thereabouts. If you do fancy the 7-1, to either way, uh, it's a huge 500-1. to but I'll be very surprised. That seems fair. Brazil do look an awful lot better than they were four years ago. Um, Lionel Messi still looks as good as he always is. Uh, what can we get on a hat-trick for him in Argentina against Spain? Yeah, Messi scoring a hat-trick would never, ever surprise me. Um, but like the Germany-Brazil fixtures, Spain are very much front runners of this tournament. Argentina are only as short as they are to win the competition because they have Messi in their, in their hands. Uh, he's 33-1 to to score a hat-trick which seems like a big price, but it'd be a long shot. Now, England, very good on Friday. Scotland, unfortunately, less so. Uh, Alex McLeish's first game. Um, they've got Hungary on Tuesday. Do you reckon it can get any better for him? Uh, not immediately. It's obviously they're, they're at the start of this process, and uh, they're unfortunate against Costa Rica. Already geared, so he's going to have to get results sooner or later. We actually think Hungary are more likely to win, uh, which is bad news for McLeish. Scotland are 17-10 to 10 to put them away. However, in better news... Given the expansion of the Euros, we're five to six. That's odds on that Scotland qualify for 2020, uh, which means a lot up there. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com. It's 18 plus only. Begambleaware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Duncan, if anybody's in search of some reading matter in this international break, I recommend Outside the Box. Okay, nice. Or Das Reboot. Or Das Reboot, yeah. Or any of the many other excellent volumes that you boys have come up with. Jules, you and I, we haven't written, have we? No. No. Good. Many thanks for being here today, Jules. <laughs> Thank you. And you, Raf. Thank you. And Mr. Ollie Saylor. Cheers. We will be back on Thursday. And so will Club Football shortly after. So it looks like being another exciting edition of Totally Football Show. Make sure you join us for that. Bye for now. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. My name is Matt Davis. You know, the guy from Chelsea TV who supports Nottingham Forest and does the commentary of the Argentinian Premier League for Nigerian TV. And if, like me, you're the kind of listener who smiles knowingly every time Jimbo says, it's gotta be Kane or calls the new Roma prodigy Sengis under The Undertaker, then here's some news to brighten up your road to WrestleMania. I've hurled the jabroni who used to host the Parts Unknown wrestling podcast through the barbershop window so that we can begin a new era. New guests, new music, new gimmick, new spandex. Parts Unknown begins on the first week of April with our WrestleMania preview show. And once we're done reviewing it seven days later, we'll begin breaking down all the previous manias from 33 to 1 in our WrestleMania Rewind. Oh, yeah! See, it's not just Serie A that deserves a nostalgia show. Mm. That's the Parts Unknown Wrestling Podcast with me, Matt Davis. Subscribe now on Acast, iTunes, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Mm.